We are back in the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. And we're going to look at a very interesting passage, uh, a confusing passage at certain places, but the main message of this passage shines bright in it, and it's going to be a blessing to us, and I pray it will be a blessing to you as it has been a blessing to me as I've been reading and studying and preparing for this week. So let me read this passage to us, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we pray to you now that you would be glorified during this, this time that we have together. We pray that your power and might would be revealed to us through your word. That we would find comfort and assurance that you are powerful over all evil that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us like you did this man in our our passage this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified, and we pray all this in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Well, this is one of those stories uh, where the details can very easily distract us from the main message. So I want to get some of the more confusing details just out of the way here at the beginning, and there's usually two big questions, and it's, it's the same question that the, that the people asked, uh, that they, they, they found out at the end. 
uh, where it says in verse 16 that they described to them what happened with the demon-possessed man and with the pigs. And those are our questions too, aren't they? What's going on with this guy? And what is the deal with all these pigs? What's going on here? So we're going to deal with the pigs later on when we get to that. But I want to start and just discuss a little bit about what's happening with this man, this man in our story. And, and the first question that comes up, and maybe you've asked it, uh, I've, I've been asked as well, do we believe that this actually happened? Or do we believe that this is a historical account, that this kind of thing has happened, can happen? And the answer to that is yes, this is a historical account. This, this truly happened. There's a man who was possessed by this legion of demons who had had supernatural powers that were given to him because of it. And he was, and these legion of demons was expelled by the power of Christ. There was no one able to help him except for Christ. So if that's true, then the general question is, what do we make of stuff like this? What do, what do we make of, of demonic possession? What do we make of forces of evil? Does that happen today? Uh, what, what sense can we make of it? And it's passages like this that I'm always reminded of, of Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's preface to the Screwtape Letters, that famous fictional work, uh, an account between uh, two demons. And he writes in the preface that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, referring to, to us, humans, we can fall into about the devils. So there's two errors we can make. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other he writes, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think he's right. There's two errors we can make. One is that we can fixate on them and, and we can see the devil behind every corner, so to speak. The other error is we can think nothing of them. We can think they don't exist. We can, we can adopt a, a, a more uh, humanistic kind of, of natural worldview that doesn't have any room for the supernatural. We don't want to make either of those errors. So what do we do then with stories like this? And does this stuff happen today? And why don't we, we see more stuff like this? Well, I think it does happen today. I think it looks different, maybe in different cultures and different societies. Um, but our nation is, we can see examples of this if we're willing to look. And sometimes I don't know if we're always willing to look. But evil is always at work behind the scenes. This is the biblical worldview, that there is forces of evil. And we see that all over in our society, especially with the, the sexuality and the sensuality that's everywhere in society that's full of it. We see it in different movements. The, the, the abortion movement is, is full of this kind of, of wickedness and evil. And with evil intentions. So we see it in our society and in institutions and in movements. But there's also, and there's a very alarming rise of the straight out occult in our country as well. And I'm, I remember my time when I lived in the Boston North Shore area. I lived in a small town, uh, just a few towns over from Salem, Massachusetts. And, and Salem, they really play up the, the Salem witch trials. And a lot of that is for tourist effect, uh, to be sure. But there is a large proportion of, of that population in that city that identify and participate in, in Wiccan and in that cult. And I've, I've been in the, the New Age bookstores that are there, and you can, you can feel it. It's a tangible feeling 
of, of just feeling overwhelmed by whatever's going on. And, and the Christian should have no part. I just want to say that at the outset. There should, the Christian has, has nothing to do with any of these things. There's no reason to. The, the, these people in, in Salem and in other places, the full on with everything, with the spell casting and, and tarot cards, palm readings, all of those things, the Christian has nothing to do with that. Because there is real danger there. Even, even the things that might seem trivial. Uh, Jess and I were at a, a birthing class uh, yesterday, and that's a whole other story. But we were, we were watching this presentation, and they were talking about induction and some of the reasons why they would not induce. And, and the general point is we're not going to uh, do an induction just because it might be convenient for you. And they give some examples of what that means. If you have family in town or you want to schedule the exact date or maybe you want your baby here for... I can't remember all the examples. You want them here for the big game or something. I don't know. But one of the examples they gave was, well, I want my baby to be an Aries like me. Which just, not even counting the, how ridiculous that is to begin with, but we can, we can start to think too much about stuff that might seem just as trivial as horoscopes. But at, at best... It might lead us down some superstitious lines, thinking that that might have any kind of impact on our lives. At worst, it can lead us in all kinds of different directions. And it can lead us to fixating on the stars as opposed to the maker and creator of the stars, who's a personal God who wants to be with us. So this, this longer introduction, I hope it has cleared up a few things, maybe raised some more questions as well. There's lots of things we can consider. But the bottom line is, that yes, evil exists, and we should not mess with it, but also we don't need to fear it, because Christ is powerful over it, and that's exactly the main message of this, of this passage. So we don't want the, to let the details about this man or about anything else to distract us from this message, that evil is real, but Christ is powerful over it. So there's a reality of evil Absolutely, absolutely real, but Christ is more powerful than it. Christ defeats it, and he redeems and restores humanity from it. So those are three things I want to see in this passage. We'll consider these three things. First, the reality of evil, and second, the power of Christ over it, and then third, how Christ redeems us from that evil. So let's look at those three things. And the first is the reality of evil. We've already discussed this in our introduction, but I want to consider it some more. This is, can be a depressing point, but it's a very helpful point. We, we need to understand this because it shows us the depth of man's depravity in sin. And that's what this shows us. The Heidelberg Catechism, a wonderful uh, catechism, it shows us this beautifully. We're going to be looking at this tonight. I encourage you to be coming to the prayer meetings tonight. Uh, in the evenings on Sundays, we're going to pick back up in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. We just started it. We're going to finish the first question and look at the second question. And the second question asks us, what things do we need to know in order to live and die happily in the comfort that we belong to Christ? The first question is about the comfort we have because we belong to Christ. The second question is, what, what do we need to understand about that? And there's three things we need to know. And these three things actually map to the three points of the sermon, because the first thing we need to know is the depth of our sin and misery. That's what it says. The first thing we need to know is that evil is real. Only then can we understand 
the second and the third things. The second thing being that Christ redeems us from all our sin and misery. And the third thing is how we live now because he has redeemed us. So we see those three things. But the first thing is to know our sin and misery. The man in our story, this man is a concentrated form, a concentrated picture of the evil that exists in the world and in all of us due to sin. This is what fallen humanity looks like. This is the depth of despair and sin. This man, he's a shell of himself. He's a shell of what it means to be a human, of of how God created humanity to be. Because he is fully now, he's under the control of the devil and of his kingdom. So this is what fallen humanity looks like. Uh, Rick Phillips, he's preaching on this passage, and he put it well. this, This is a foretaste of hell for this man. And for us, when we consider his experience. And this is why uh, some scholars think that this man made his living among the tombs because he was, he was living uh, a life of, of living death. That's what it was. He was a dead man walking. There was no hope for him. We see this clearly. No one was able to help him. But what we must see here, beyond some of the questions that might come up with certain details in the story, what we must see is the sinfulness of sin and the depravity that comes from the fall. And this is what humanity looks like apart from God's grace. And the truth of the matter is that we are all like this to a certain extent. And I want to make sure I'm clear here. But the difference between this man and all of us is not a difference of of kind, but a difference of degree. Because we are all lost in sin. We were all under the influence of the kingdom of darkness until God saves us and he brings us out of this kingdom and into his own kingdom. So listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who we were all following. He goes on in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This, This is what humanity is. This is who we were. Who we are by nature, children of God's wrath. Listen to how he describes fallen humanity, dead in sin following not God, but following another ruler, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the age. This is the reality of evil. This is the the problem in the world. The problem in the world today is, is fallen humanity, sin and rebellion and brokenness. Maybe you'll remember a a few weeks ago, I I quoted from Chesterton, his response to the question, what's wrong with the world? And he, he simply writes back, he says, dear sir, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Because I'm a sinner like everyone else, and I contribute to the brokenness of this world. And this is why the Bible is so helpful, it's so clear, because only the biblical worldview can give an accurate account for the world that we live in. Only the biblical worldview can, can give us the answers for why the world is the way it is and the answers for what we can do about it, and namely the person who is doing something about it. 
the forces of darkness that are very real. They hate everything that is good. They hate our good God. And they are seeking to destroy his good creation by any means necessary. So that's true. And so were all of us. That's what Ephesians tells us. In which, in which we once walked, Paul says. So evil is real. And we have been plunged into the depth of this sin and misery. So that's the first thing. But thankfully, that's not the only thing. And the good news of the gospel is that Paul doesn't end in Ephesians 2 verse 3. That's not the end of the story. Yes, evil is real, but Christ is powerful. That's the second thing we want to see. My pastor in, in Richmond, Dennis Bullock, wonderful man, faithful pastor and preacher, this is one of his favorite points that he would make, is his favorite word. What's his favorite word? What's the best word in the Bible? And he would say, it's the word but, all right? And we're, but with one T, okay? So kids, don't, don't be giggling, okay? But it's the word but. What does Ephesians 2, 4 say? It says, but God. That's the greatest news ever. Yes, evil is real, but God. Yes, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, but God. Yes, it is true that all humanity, including you, were once plunged into the depths of sin and misery, but God. Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the second thing we see in this passage. It's the power of Christ to save us. The second point of the sermon is the second thing that the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that we need to know. You know the depth of your sin and misery. That's the first thing. But now you also need to know how Christ has saved you and redeemed you from all your sin and misery. Not some, but all. All your sin and misery. This is exactly what happens to this man in our story. So can you picture that scene with me? Can you picture Jesus showing up on the bank there. He's, he's in the boat with his disciples. He's crossing the Red Sea. We looked at that story last week where he calms the storm on the sea by the word of his power. And now they're crossing over to the Gentile area of the Decapolis, which is where the, that uh, area of the Gerasenes was. Jesus has demonstrated his power over the sea. Now he's going to go to battle again with the forces of evil. But this time... It's against the whole legion. And it's on his, their own turf, so to speak. He's going into the, uh, to the area of the Gentiles. They're not in Judea anymore. So these demons, the, this legion, they must have, have been having a really good time. They had a good thing going with this guy. Nobody was able to stop them. They were untouchable. But then, they see in the distance this boat comes to the dock, and who else steps off of it but the Son of God incarnate? What were they thinking to themselves? Oh, no. <laughs> we're in trouble. 
They know exactly how this is going to go. There's nowhere that they can hide. So they decide, let's get this over with. They run to Jesus, to the Son of God. They fall at his feet. But you'd think that maybe this, this would have been a fair fight. Jesus, he's faced off against one and two demons here and there. But this is a whole legion. A Roman legion is 4,000, 5,000 troops. We don't know how many demons there were. Some scholars think maybe 2,000 because that's the, the number of pigs that were in the herd. I don't know how that math works. I don't know how the spiritual realm, how that interacts. Maybe the demons doubled up, so maybe there's 4,000. I have no idea. We don't know. But the point is, there's a lot. Jesus is outnumbered 1,000 to 1, so maybe finally now this is going to be a fair fight. But it's not. This is what Mark wants us to see. A thousand to one odds is still not a fair fight. The great Scottish uh, reformer John Knox, he said, uh, one man with God is always in the majority. I love that. Give me Scotland or give me death. If it's just me and God's on my side, then I'm in the majority. And if that's true, how much more is it if it's the son of god the god man himself how much more is he always in the majority that's exactly what we see there is no fight christ doesn't get sucker punched he doesn't get any good looks in the demons they stand no chance they fall at his feet because they know what's about to happen it was said in verse 4 that there was no man strong enough to subdue this demon-possessed man, but now such a man is here. This is the man. If you've been with us in this series, you, you've seen how we've, we've been pointing out this, this theme that Mark is, is threading throughout the story about how Jesus is mightier. John the Baptist, he says, one who is mightier than I is coming after me. He's the strong man. He's the stronger man that binds the strong man, Satan. He's mightier. And he's mightier here. There's no fight. But with a word, the, the legion is finished. And, and notice, it's, it's only Christ's, only his permission that they're allowed to flee into the pigs. In fact, they're, they're even trying to invoke God against Christ himself. They, they know who's in charge. So evil is real. But Christ is more powerful than all evil. That's the message. That's what we want to see. But you might still be thinking, okay, that's wonderful, but I'm still curious, what is going on with these pigs? Why these pigs? And truthfully, I don't know. I don't know if any of us really know. We don't know all the details about why, but we do find some more information in some of the other accounts in Matthew and in Luke so let's talk about this just a little bit to help clarify some of these things, some of what's going on here. In Matthew's account, he, re he records that the demons ask Jesus, have you come to torment us, he says, before the time? Well, what is the time that he's referring to? Luke helps us out with this as well. In, in Luke's account, it says that the demons beg Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, that's their final destination, and, and they know that there is a time coming when Jesus 
is going to come again, namely his second coming, when he is going to command all the forces of evil. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. They're going to be thrown into the abyss forever. That day is coming. But that day was, was not this day. And the demons understood that. So here they are. For the time being, then, Jesus permits them to go and be, uh, to enter into the pigs. But why pigs? We still don't know the answer to that. And I don't know. And from what I can read, from what I can tell, I don't know if uh, anyone really knows, but there are a few things that we can point out about that. Remember that we're in a Gentile country, uh, unclean land, according to the Jewish people, and, and the pigs were an unclean animal. So these unclean spirits, they, they enter into these unclean animals, and then we're told that they all run headlong off the cliff and are drowned in the sea. And in a sense, then, this story serves as a visible parable. It shows us what Christ is going to do to everything that is unclean. That there is a day coming in which he's going to cast all wickedness and all evil and it will all be drowned in the abyss forever. That's what Christ is going to do. And we can be sure that he is going to do that because he has gone through that already on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin. He who was clean became unclean by taking on all of our sin upon himself. He tasted death on our behalf. He drowned in the drinking of the cup of his father's wrath so that we would not have to drink his wrath. That's what Christ has done for us. So that we might not have to taste his wrath but rather receive his mercy. Christ has redeemed us from all sin and all misery. So like the demons, we ought to fall at his feet, not out of fear, but out of love and reverence for what he has done for us. I think this passage also shows us that Christ, he values human life, he values your soul more than anything else in his creation. More so than an entire herd of pigs. He valued this man's life more than this herd of pigs. We live in a post-PETA, post-Babe the Movie world, right? So we have a, some sentimental value to, to animals that did not exist back here in this story. The, the people that were upset and afraid were not upset because some animals uh, died that day, but that their livelihood was lost, this herd of pigs, and it was affecting their bottom line. So they said, Jesus, we need you to get out of here. But here's another thing it shows us. So Jesus cares more about your soul than your material blessings. He cares more about your eternal soul than your worldly livelihood. So he'll take things away from his people, from his children, because he loves them so much if that's what it takes to bring you back to himself. Christ will take away your wealth if it means saving your soul. That is absolutely true. So to sum up all of this, though, I think why Mark leaves out some of these details that we might want to know to help fill in the, the picture of the story is he's doing it on purpose because in Mark's mind, those details don't matter. What matters 
is Christ. What matters is how powerful he is. What matters is what he does for this man. How he redeems him from all his sin and misery. Removes every last member of that legion. And that's what we see. This is the last thing we see. Is that while we were trapped in sin like this man, Jesus, he comes and he saves us. And when we stand before God, it is the case, this is true, when we stand before God, all our sin, all our guilt, everything has been cast out of us, has been drowned in the sea. It is no more. And when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. We stand before him guiltless. So this leads us to the last thing, the final thing. We'll close with this. This is the picture of redeemed humanity. We've seen the reality of evil. This is the depth of our sin and misery. We've also seen the power of Christ, how he redeems us from all our sin and misery. This is the third thing. We see a picture of what redeemed humanity looks like. What Heidelberg will say is our response to the gospel. Because all this is true, here's how we live a life of gratitude. So what does this redeemed life look like? What does this restored humanity look like? We get a picture of this from the man himself. And we're told three things about him. We're told this in verse 15. The people, they come to Jesus and they see the man who was possessed by demons, the one who had the legion, but then we're told three things about him. It says that he was sitting there and he was, he was clothed and he was in his right mind. These are three things, three depictions of, of redeemed humanity. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. This is what it looks like for us, for the Christian redeemed and restored back to Christ. First, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Before, while he was in sin, he fell at the feet of Jesus as an unbeliever, as one dead in sin. But now, as Christ, Christ, he's lifted up his head. And he's sitting at his feet now gladly with joy. So are you sitting at the feet of Jesus, seeking to be with him, loving him for who he is, seeking to learn from him in his ways as, as teacher? Is Christ the center of your life? Is he the center of your life? Or are you trying to live with one foot in Christ and, and one foot in the world still? But we're called to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from him. It's also said that he's clothed. Here's a picture of the gospel again. He's clothed, obviously given some physical clothes, but in the spiritual sense, in that, that more important reality, he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Once spiritually naked, now he's been clothed. Once his sin on full display, now he's been clothed in, in Christ's righteousness. Like Adam and Eve were clothed with the, the skins of the lamb, so we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We sit at the feet of Jesus, we're clothed in His righteousness, and we've been given our right minds. We're back in our right minds. Of course, this man who knows all the things he was suffering from uh, mentally, as he's also uh, physiologically as well as spiritually. 
So in, in that sense, yes, he's back in his right mind, but even more so, he's, his mind has been renewed. And the effects of sin on the mind have been, have been restored. He's been regenerated. And this is true for all of us, for all Christians. We've been given our right minds back. Christ is the only perfect human who's ever existed. And this is what a, a, a purely secular uh, humanistic kind of worldview cannot cannot account for, because uh, a, a purely humanistic worldview misses this. Because if you want to know what it means to be human and to be human to your fullest, you have to look to Christ, because Christ is the only human who was ever perfect, who fulfilled everything that it means to be a human. We must look to Christ, and now we have been saved by Christ. We've been renewed in our totality mind, body, soul, all of it. We're able to live a life, uh, truly uh, experience what humanity was, was created for. Namely, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We're able to experience that again now, truly in this life. And when Christ returns, we're going to be made perfect like Him. And that's our great hope. So in all of this then, what we see is, yes, evil is real. We can see it all around us. We should fight against it. But that fight begins in our hearts as we wage war against the sin and the indwelling effects of sin in our hearts, knowing that Christ has already defeated the enemy. He has power over all evil. He's defeated it. And if we put our faith and trust in him, he has redeemed and restored us from it. And he will bring all of that to completion on the day when he returns, when he does cast everything uh, for eternally into the abyss. So we must put our trust and our faith in him. Sit at his feet, look to him, believe in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, once more for your might and your power. We pray that we would learn to sit at your feet like this man, to delight in you and to learn from you. Uh, we pray that we would not fear any evil, but rest in you who has power over all things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. You have power over all of it. Help us then to trust in you and to rest in you. And may your name be glorified, we pray. Amen.